We come tonight to 1 Samuel 16. It is the middle point of the book of 1 Samuel. And that is true certainly just in terms of numbers, 15 chapters before 1 Samuel 16, 15 chapters of 1 Samuel after 1 Samuel 16, it is the midpoint, but it is more than just the midpoint in terms of numbers and chapters. It is the midpoint of the entire book, substantively. Now, what is 1 Samuel all about? 1 Samuel is about three people. It is about Samuel. It is about Saul. And it is about David. Of course, there are other characters that make appearances. Eli plays a part at the very beginning of the book. We understand of certain others throughout the book that play minor roles. But really, fundamentally, this is about God's last true prophet, if you will, at least in in this kind of formal leadership sense like Samuel had, leading to the monarchy of Israel starting with Saul, and then Saul's, as the midpoint happens right here, Saul's ultimate fall and replacement with King David, a man after God's own heart. And as we read through that passage over the last week in our Old Testament Bible reading, one of you pointed out a very interesting phrase In verse number 14 of 1 Samuel 16, verse 13 tells us that Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, or David, in the midst of his brethren, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. There was an anointing to a kingdom, and the Spirit of God came on David. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. And now listen to this. But the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. As the spirit of the Lord came on David, it departed from Saul. And an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. An evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. This evil spirit we hear of later in this chapter when we hear that David took a harp and played with his hand and the evil spirit departed from Saul. We see it two chapters later in 1 Samuel excuse me, 18 when the evil spirit is upon God, from God is upon him again. David takes his harp and plays and Saul takes a javelin and tries to stick him to the wall, killing him, attempting to kill him. We see it one chapter later, 1 Samuel 19, when what happens? Evil spirit from God again on Saul. David is again playing and again an attempted murder takes place. Now you might ask, what is this evil spirit from God? What does it mean for us, particularly after we have been studying about the Holy Spirit of God and his ministry in our lives? 
And I want to look at that subject today, not just as a matter of historical or biblical curiosity, but under the assumption and under the reality that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. That means that God left this story for us and the detail of the consequences for Saul to teach us something. The title of the message tonight is The Spirit That Troubled. The Spirit That Troubled. And I'm taking that phrase from verse 14 telling us that this evil spirit from God troubled Saul. I want to look at this tonight in three different aspects. First, I want us to put our lab coats on, if you will, our doctor's frocks. And I want us to make what I'm going to call is a differential diagnosis. A differential diagnosis. Now, what is a differential diagnosis? In healthcare, a differential diagnosis is distinguishing a disease or a condition from others that present similar clinical features. A differential diagnosis is what a doctor does every day when they come into you and say, hey doc, I have this pain or I have this problem right here. And immediately the doctor is going to begin cycling through different conditions that it could be and trying to identify from the clinical features which one it is as distinct from other similar diagnoses. And if we're going to understand what this evil spirit from God was that troubled Saul, I want us to just think biblically together for a few moments about what other similar conditions in the Bible this could be. I've told you before that is important truth. When we interpret scripture, we interpret scripture by what? Scripture. So let's go to the scripture and try to identify other circumstances that might fit this bill. And particularly the one feature I'm looking for is, when would we say that an evil spirit is tormenting a person or an evil spirit is troubling them? Now there are certainly instances in scripture we see where demonic influences are cast out of a person. Not a lot necessarily is known about how that happened other than they were a, there was a de- demon-tormented man or woman and Jesus or one of the apostles cast out the evil spirit. So I'm not going to look as much detail at those, but I want to suggest at least three differential diagnoses that we could potentially make here. One is when the evil spirit is by invitation. It is invited. Now, who would be the classic biblical case of someone who invited the torment, the trouble of an evil spirit into his life? Who would be the just absolute, in my view, most significant biblical example of this? Judas Iscariot. Do you remember in John chapter 13, Scripture says that Satan had already put in, 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 in Judas Iscariot's heart to betray Christ. And if you go to the end of that chapter, in verse 25, John asks Jesus, Lord, who is it? Who is the one who's going to betray you? Jesus answered, he it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. Is part of the Passover meal, taking this piece of bread that has been dipped 
And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Can you imagine how chilling those words are? Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, that thou doest, do quickly. And out Judas goes to an end of his life that was utterly miserable. 30 pieces of silver that he had no use for. He came back and dropped them at the feet of the high priest and said, I've sinned, I've betrayed the innocent blood. It was a repentance, not a true repentance of one turning back to God, but simply of remorse and regret. And his life ended when he committed suicide, hanging himself. What an unbelievable tragedy, a human tragedy for this man who really invited Satan into his life by his response to Jesus. We see another interesting example, I think, of the influence the devil can have by our own, whether invitation or just opening the door, in Acts chapter 5. You remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira? You remember in, in this uh, particular story, uh, there has been great generosity depicted in the early church. And Ananias and Sapphira think that they can test the Holy Spirit, lie to the Holy Spirit, and, not, and, and have a show of generosity, but only give part of the price, keep some back for themselves. And listen to what Peter says. Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land. Why has Satan filled your heart? Sobering words again. Now, what is this characteristic, we would say? It is someone who is perhaps yielding myself as a willing host. I am yielding myself to the influence of this trouble. Judas Iscariot, Ananias, and Sapphira, there is a very sobering uh, 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 fact that we even ourselves, I believe, can be troubled and tormented by the affliction of the evil one in particular when we yield ourselves as a willing host to him. There's a second example biblically when one might be troubled by what we would call an evil spirit, and that is by discipline. By invitation, then by discipline. Now, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is speaking to the church at Corinth, and he's speaking to them about this man who has been committing fornication with his father's wife. Something that was viewed as abominable even by the sexually permissive culture at Corinth. They were even shocked at how bad this immorality was. And instead of dealing with this situation and bringing church discipline to account, instead the church at Corinth was doing nothing. And here is Paul's judgment. He said, For I verily as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Do you, do you, do you understand what he's saying? 
This person, what he's telling them, they are to be expelled from the fellowship, expelled from the spiritual protection that the body of Christ offers. And by expelling that person from Christian fellowship, they, this person would be delivered to Satan. Why? For a disciplinary purpose, so that their flesh, their body would be destroyed, but what? Their spirit would be saved. The ultimate purpose of this was restorative, even though it was disciplinary. Another example of this is in 1 Timothy 1. Paul exhorts Timothy to hold faith and a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith have made shipwreck. And he says, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan. I have delivered these two men unto Satan. Why? For a restorative purpose, that they may learn not to blaspheme. There is a delivery that God is willing to give people who are identifying as Christians in the body of Christ for them to be delivered to Satan's will and to Satan's purposes, if you will, to Satan's, to Satan's um, uh, uh, wickedness against them. And it's for a disciplinary, it's for a restorative purpose, that the spirit may be saved, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So we see by invitation when someone like Judas is simply going to be a willing host for Satan in his life. We see the example of discipline where in two examples we see here where someone is delivered to Satan for a restorative purpose. But there's a third example. We'd call it by judgment. Judgment. Turn over, if you will, to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, God is speaking through Paul of the sin that was present and that Paul was describing in this material world. He says in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. So the wrath of God is revealed against them. And scripture says, not only they knew God, verse 21, they glorified him not as God. They became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. Scripture says in verse 23, they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, into birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Now listen to this in verse 24. Wherefore God also gave them up. This is God's action. God gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts. Scripture says in verse 26, for this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. And he says in verse 28, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. There is a judgment we see in scripture of giving one over simply to the consequences of the path that they have chosen. Listen to these words from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul speaks of the deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perished. These ones that perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. 
Who did that? God did. Who sent them strong delusion? God did. Why? So that they would believe a lie. Now, we need to check our presuppositions here. That sounds like strong medicine. That sounds like pretty, something pretty harsh. But scripture says it clearly. God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. There's another very sobering example here in John chapter 12. John, as the apostle, is bringing out this idea of Christ's miracles. He says, though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believe not on him. That the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, listen to this, therefore they could not believe. They could not believe because that Isaiah said again, he hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart that they should not see with their eyes nor understand with their heart and be converted and I should heal them. They could not believe. Now, what do we make of that? What do we make of God giving people over? Of God sending strong delusion of God blinding their eyes and hardening their heart. You know, there's a taste of this even that we get as we just quoted Isaiah, John did here. We also see the book of Jeremiah. Listen to these words in Jeremiah 14. Thus saith the Lord unto this people, thus have they loved to wander. They have not refrained their feet. Therefore the Lord doth not accept them. He will now remember their iniquity and visit their sins. Then said the Lord unto me, unto Jeremiah, pray not for this people for their good. Can you imagine a loving God saying to his prophet, don't pray for them. Do not pray to the, do not ask me for good for this people. He says, when they fast, I will not hear their cry. And when they offer burnt offering and an oblation, I will not accept them. But I will consume them by the sword and by the famine and by the pestilence. Do not pray for them for their good. Wow. What do we make of this? We make of this an intentional act of God for a destructive purpose. An intentional act of God for a destructive purpose. It is an act of judgment in which one is given over to this kind of behavior. Now, I want you to notice that in each one of these cases, God is simply confirming the choice someone has already made. In these cases, scripture is not suggesting that these people were desperately looking to believe and God says, ha, 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 I won't let you. In each of these cases, God's judgment is confirming the path that someone has already freely chosen. Did Pharaoh harden his heart? Yes. Did God harden his heart? Yes. Scripture says both. God is willing to confirm the choices of hard-heartedness and rebellion we make. Scripture tells us even of the people of the Old Testament, of those who had come out of Egypt, God granted them their request and sent leanness into their souls. It is an act of judgment. Now let me ask you this. 
when it comes to Saul and the evil spirit from the Lord that was upon him, do we believe that it was by invitation from Saul, like Judas Iscariot? Do we think it was by discipline that God sent this into his life, like we see for Alexander or Hymenaeus or this man in 1 Corinthians 5? Do we think it was judgment that we see pronounced elsewhere in Scripture? Let's look secondly at Saul's condition, at Saul's condition. What do we think God is trying to tell us here? The first thing I think we need to point out is who sent the evil spirit. Who was the one who, from, from whom the spirit came? Listen to this again. But the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord. That's Jehovah. An evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. Where was it from? From the Lord. In fact, his servants knew that too. Verse 15 says, And Saul's servants said unto him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God troubleth thee. Verse 23, And it came to pass when the evil spirit from God was upon Saul. We see over in 1 Samuel chapter 18, And it came to pass on the morrow that the evil spirit from God came upon Saul. We turn turn over to chapter 19. And we see similarly, and the evil spirit from the Lord was upon Saul. Who was it from? From the Lord. Now that tells me that number one, what's going on here is not simply a kind of temptation where Saul invited the devil into his life invited the devil to have torment on him. I think we're going to see there is some truth there. But this is not, in my view, akin to a Judas situation where someone is simply falling into sin or opening their life to this effect and Satan takes advantage of it. I think of Matthew when Jesus says to Peter, Peter, Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you like wheat. There's purposes that Satan has for all of us. And we rely on the protective hand of God and his mercy on us to encourage and shield us from that. In fact, Jesus said, when you are converted, strengthen your brethren. He did not say if. He said, when you are converted, because God would never allow Peter or us to be tempted above what we were able. The second thing I think we need to see, though, is what the context of his condition was. Not just who sent this condition, but the context of it. Again, this is going to be, I think, very helpful for us. Why was the Spirit of God on Saul? Why was the Spirit of God on Saul in the first place? To be king. Sometimes theologians, I think, when they have looked at this passage, have conflated the spirit of God coming on someone like Saul or on David as a sign of their salvation or their place in God's covenant family. But that's not the case. This is not an issue about Saul's salvation or lack thereof. There's another key question there that we'd have to wrestle with. But this is not about that point. How do we know that? Well, look at what we already see in verse 13. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brethren. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. 
Are we going to suggest that David was not a member of God's covenant family before that point? No, scripture has already told us God found a man after his own heart. He was looking after a man like David who was a man after his own heart. This was an anointing for a particular purpose, a particular role. In fact, we see this Old Testament conception even in Jesus. When Jesus was baptized and the Spirit came down and anointed him visibly in the sight of everyone, was that, did that have anything to do with Jesus' standing before God? Of course not. It was God's stamp of approval on the ministry of Jesus. That's why Jesus immediately was sent out first to the temptation by the devil and then to a life of ministry. So we see here this anointing was not having to do with one's relationship or standing with God primarily. It was having to do with the position that this person was being assigned to. And in fact, the Spirit of God in this sense came on Saul at multiple times. The Spirit of God came on Saul when he was, uh, when, when he had gone away from Samuel after being anointed. But also scripture tells us it came on for particular purposes. Listen to 1 Samuel 11. Remember that story of Jabesh Gilead, the men of Jabesh Gilead? And they, they, they being confronted with that awful choice, come out to us and we'll put your eyes out or we'll slaughter you. That's the deal. Doesn't sound like a great deal to me. And they send to Saul and scripture says that Saul came after the herd out of the field. And Saul said, what aileth the people that they weep? And they told him the tidings of the men of Jabesh. And the spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard these tidings. And his anger was kindled greatly. It was like the Spirit came on him once again to prepare him for his work as this military king. Now you say, why is that important? Because what do we read leading up to this middle, this midpoint of 1 Samuel in 1 Samuel 16? Of course, Saul has now committed two and really three acts of disobedience. One act of disobedience, not waiting for Samuel to come and offer the sacrifice. And Samuel tells him in 1 Samuel 13, your kingdom was going to remain, but now it's not going to. There is, uh, your line is not going to continue after you. It was a rejection of him for disobedience. But then, of course, we see in 1 Samuel 15, Saul's ultimate and final act of disobedience when we see God's direct command him to is wipe out the Amalekites entirely and Saul, under pressure from the people, disobeys and saves those uh, animals that he says will be, uh, will be sacrificed to the Lord. Listen to what Samuel says to him. He says in verse 26, I will not return with thee, for thou hast rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord hath rejected thee from being king over Israel. You have rejected God and God has rejected you. Why did the spirit of God depart from Saul? Because when the spirit of God came to anoint David, David was now invested with God for the particular purpose that God had for him. And if you will, in a certain sense, at least in the sense of God's positive purposes for Saul, those purposes had been rejected. 
Saul had rejected the word of God and God had now rejected his kingdom. As Samuel makes clear in mourning for him, he would desperately love to see Saul restored and God makes clear to him, no, this rejection is final. I want us to see one other thing I think that is very important to see here. Look with me at 1 Samuel 16 again. Verse 1 says, And the Lord said unto Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil, and go, I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go if Saul hear it? He will kill me. What does that tell you about Saul? What does that tell you about Saul and his response to the rejection of God? I want us to notice something about what Saul was like before this evil spirit from the Lord troubled him and what it was like and what he was like after. Let's look at verse number 14. The spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. That word troubled him has the idea of terrifying him. The word is translated elsewhere in our Hebrew Old Testament, afraid. It was like it terrorized him. So this evil spirit from God comes on him. And what is the effect? It has a terrorizing effect on him. In fact, scripture says in the next several chapters that when Saul looked at David, he was afraid because he knew God was departed from him. He knew something about David. What was the effect on his life? It was utter misery. Turn, turn again ahead to 1 Samuel chapter 18. David is coming back from killing the uh, Goliath, the Philistine. And it came to pass, verse 6, as they came, when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women came out of all cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tabrets, with joy, and with instruments of music. And the women answered one another as they played and said, Saul hath slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands, and Saul was very wroth. And the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed unto David ten thousands. And to me they have ascribed but thousands. And what can he have more but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day and forward. And it came to pass on the morrow, the very next day, that the evil spirit from God came upon Saul. And he prophesied in the midst of it the house. And David played with his hand as at other times. And there was a javelin in Saul's hand. And Saul cast the javelin for he said, I will smite. David even to the wall with it and David avoided out of his presence twice and Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him and was departed from Saul now notice this progression immediately before the evil spirit from God has come on him Saul is already extremely extremely jealous of his kingdom how do we know that? Because Samuel believes that if he learned he was going to anoint a new king, Saul would kill him. Now, I want you to think about Samuel. Samuel was no shrinking violet. Samuel was no wallflower. 
Samuel was the guy we just read about in 1 Samuel 15 when King Agag has been spared by Saul from being killed. Samuel says, bring him to me and takes a sword and chops him up. Samuel is no fearful person. If Samuel says Saul would kill me if he found out, Saul would have killed him. Without a doubt. What does that tell you about Saul? Again, when God said, I've rejected you from being my king, Saul held up his fist to God and says, no, you haven't. I'll hold on. What happens when David comes into the picture? Notice the first time the evil spirit from God comes on. David comes with his harp and plays. And what happens to the evil spirit? It departs. Saul gets relief. David's not in the picture yet. And then what happens after David kills the Philistines and the women come singing and ascribing glory to David? Now suddenly Saul eyes David and David is target. And the next time the evil spirit from God comes on him, what happens? He's got a javelin and he tries to kill him. What happens the next time in, in chapter 19? Same thing. Do you know we don't hear about that evil spirit from God on him from that point forward? From that point forward, Saul was simply David's sworn enemy for life. And it was either going to be Saul's life or David's. What I'm suggesting to you is simply like this. This evil spirit from the Lord that came on Saul was not making him something fundamentally different than he already was. That path had already been set in motion. Saul was already shaking his fist at the authority of God over his life, both in his rebellion and disobedience and in his attempt to cling to the calling that was no longer his, that God had rejected him from. And what did the evil spirit from God do? It simply confirmed the direction he had already committed to walk. See, my point is this. I don't believe that this is primarily something by invitation, though certainly Paul, uh, Saul would have welcomed as we see later in his life, a kind of demonic influence into his life. I don't believe this was a matter of discipline from God on him. Why? Because Saul simply, the rest of his life is straight downhill. I believe that this is an example of God's judgment. God's judgment on a man he had rejected from being king and one who turned around to him and said, make me. I'm not going easy. Now, there's a couple of other passages, I think, that for me, at least, confirm this. Judges chapter 9. You remember the story of Gideon? You remember the story of the 70 children that he fathered? And the one that he fathered from a concubine, a man named Ahimelech? And it's a man named Abimelech, I should say. And this man, Abimelech, you'll remember, went and killed all of the sons of Gideon, his half-brothers, uh, but one who had managed to escape. And now Abimelech steps in and is the king for three years. Now listen to this. Scripture says, when Abimelech had reigned three years over Israel, then God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. And the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech that the cruelty done to the threescore and ten sons of Jerubbaal, of Gideon, might come and their blood be laid upon Abimelech, their brother, which slew them, and upon the men of Shechem, which aided him in the killing of his brethren. Who sent the evil spirit? God did. 
Why did God send the evil spirit? To change them into something different than they already were? No, Abimelech knew all about treachery. He had already done it to his 69 or 70 half-brothers. And God said, judgment is coming. And this will be the source of my judgment. There will be treachery between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. There's another example, again, in the historical literature in the Old Testament. Same idea, same concept. Do you remember the story of Ahab joining together with the king of Judah to go fight and to go war against their enemy? And the prophet Micaiah comes to provide a a counsel from God. And Ahab says, oh, not that guy. He never says anything good. He only says evil. And Micaiah says, oh, go, you'll prevail, you'll win. And he's clearly mocking. He's clearly being sarcastic because Ahab says, no, I'm actually asking you for the truth. And listen to what Micaiah says. He says, hear thou therefore the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who shall persuade Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And when said on this manner and another said on that manner, and there came forth a spirit and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. And the Lord said unto him, wherewith? And he said, I will go forth and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, thou shalt persuade him and prevail also. Go forth and do so. Now listen to what Micaiah what Micaiah says. Now therefore behold, the Lord hath put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these thy prophets and the Lord hath spoken evil concerning thee. Who put the lying spirit? The Lord. Why? To do something that these men were not already committed to do? No. These prophets didn't need any help in terms of a lying spirit, but it was ultimately a confirmation of the path that these ones had already set themselves toward. And it was a sign of God's judgment to say, so let it be done. The die has been cast. See, Saul was already obsessed with his own position. Saul already was obsessed with maintaining his grip on the kingdom. And I believe God, this evil spirit that terrified him, that troubled him, that put him in misery was simply God putting the, if you will, casting the final die and saying, so let it be done as you wish. It was judgment on Saul. But we can't forget this either in the sovereign purposes of God. Not only was this judgment on Saul, it was something about David too. How did David even end up in Saul's court to begin with? Look at 1 Samuel chapter 16 again. His servants say in verse 16, Let our Lord now command thy servants which are before thee to seek out a man who is a cunning player on a harp and it shall come to pass when the evil spirit from God is upon thee that he shall play with his hand and thou shalt be well. And then one of his servants tells Saul, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite that is cunning in playing and a mighty valiant man and a man of war and prudent in matters and a comely person and the Lord is with him. Wherefore Saul sent messengers unto Jesse and said, Send me David thy son which is with the sheep. You see, God's judgment on Saul was God's opportunity for David. God's casting the die, confirming Saul's rebellion against him 
was also God welcoming and beckoning his new anointed into a place of opportunity, into a place of usefulness, into a place that would be a springboard for God's purposes for him. Not only that, God also was using this evil spirit in Saul's life to teach David, teach him patience, teach him submission, teach him trust in God. As we see in all these Psalms that David wrote when he was fleeing from Saul, running for his life in terror and fear, learning to trust in God. You see, yes, God was punishing Saul. Yes, God was bringing judgment on him for his rebellion against a sovereign God. But he was also preparing David for the kingdom that God had anointed him for. Now, what is Saul's condition? Again, in my view, we don't have to be dogmatic about it. But in my view, this is God's judgment on Saul that we see in other places in scripture that left him as to experience the consequences of the choices and of the character that he had already lived out. And that's why I want to stop thirdly with our instruction. What is God saying to us today? What can we learn from the fact that Saul was left in this place of judgment? I want to start firstly with a word of comfort. I've already said tonight that we, I think, go off the wrong track when we think that this is about Saul's salvation, about his relationship with God. This was fundamentally, in my view, about the position that he was clinging to and God's rejection of him from this. Scripture says of, to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, Nathan is prophesying to, to David. He says, I will be your son's father and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. What happened? God's mercy was removed and God's judgment was put into place. Here's our comfort, friends. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30 tells us to grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Praise God that in the economy of the gospel of his son, God does not remove his Holy Spirit from those whom he has sealed. God does not remove his mercy from his children. We are sealed unto the day of redemption. And I want to encourage you that the purpose of this message tonight is not to bring you into that place of fear about whether the spirit of God will abandon you if you truly are the child of God. Jesus says those that are in, that are in my hand, no one can pluck them away. Praise God for that. But I do want to say, secondly, a caution, a caution. I want us to note something that we haven't talked about yet. If this was a spirit of judgment from God, why did music make it better? Have you thought about that? In 1 Samuel 16, his servants say, 
Call for a man who can play well and he'll come and he'll play the harp and you'll feel better. And then we read in 1 Samuel chapter 16 when the evil spirit from God was upon Saul that David took a harp and played with his hands so Saul was refreshed and was well and the evil spirit departed from him. You say, why? I want you to think about this possibility. We don't know exactly what the evil spirit from God was. We don't know truly whether it was demonic or whether it was physical. In fact, a lot of what Saul is experiencing here looks a lot like a real form of mental illness, almost a schizophrenia or other kind of example. It is possible, I don't rule it out, it is possible that God's judgment on Saul was exactly this form of a, f- a form of this mental illness. I'm not making a judgment on it. It could be, it could be demonic. We just don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. But what I want to suggest to you is that what was going on in Saul's mind was a battle of his thoughts. Why? Because it says the spirit, the spirit troubled him. It terrified him. What did it do? It led him to a place where he already was. It it confirmed where he already was of complete jealousy, of obsessiveness, of compulsiveness toward David, of saying, I'm going to eye you from this day forward and I'm going to try to kill you whenever I have the opportunity. The picture that we see of Saul is a man who was miserable in his thoughts. His head was not right. He was troubled. We went through a study by Jim Berg, quieting a noisy soul. The effect that a chaotic thought life will have on the noise in our soul and indeed our own mental stability. What I want to suggest to you is simply this. I think the reason David's music initially soothed Saul was it because it simply took his mind off the chaotic nature of his thoughts that was driving Saul crazy and would indeed drive him mad. I think Saul's music, or I think David's music was that which, as we have seen in other circumstances, perhaps in our own lives, there are certain forms of music that just quiet us, that allow us to, 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 to uh, uh, move away from whatever we're feeling at the moment. I think it was probably largely a physical reaction to someone whose mind was taken over and troubled. And friends, what I want to suggest to you, this is a caution This is a caution. Why? Because the next time the evil spirit from God came on Saul and David played, did it work? No. David cast a javelin at him, or Saul cast a javelin at him and tried to kill him. Let me suggest, this morning we talked about the way that that society today deals with with the suffering and the evil that's around us in this world, the labor pains that our world is experiencing, they medicate themselves. And do you know what they medicate themselves with? Entertainment, Netflix, video games, music. You listen to the music that some of the people are listening to you when you just go by them in in the car. An entire car shaking must certainly be causing deafness. Do you know what what you can't do when that music is playing that loud? You can't think. Do you know what a relief it is to certain people when they can't think? Because when they think, that's when the terrifying thoughts come. That's when the anxious thoughts come. That's when the bitter 
or angry thoughts come. And so it's simply far more simple to medicate it by tuning it out, by loud music, by whatever entertainment is in my life, by wherever I can direct my thoughts so they're not on the places I don't want to think about. Friends, it's not going to work. The way to get victory over our chaotic thoughts and by our troubled minds is not medication. In fact, we see in the world today this emphasis on meditation as a form of emptying our minds and clearing out our thoughts. And I'm convinced by those who say it's a very dangerous practice. It's, a, it's connected to all kinds of very dangerous effects because the scriptural solution to clearing out our thoughts or not emptying our minds in some kind of mystical sense. It's by anchoring our minds in the truths of God's word and in the thoughts that he wants us to think. So my caution to you tonight is looking at David's example with Saul. Don't try to fix the chaos, the troubled thoughts in your mind by self-medicating them, by tuning them out. My encouragement to you is to do what Saul should have done. Humble yourself, humble myself and say, God, what's at the root of my fearful thoughts? What's at the root of my anxious thoughts? What's at the root of my bitter thoughts? Where do I need to repent? Where do I need to bow, to submit myself before your throne? That's where I will find relief, not by simply something that medicates my thoughts. Finally, finally, there's a real concern here, I think. I think the ultimate message of Saul is simply this. When we reject and rebel against God, God may very well, may very well seal our decision in judgment. It is a very sobering thing for children who grow up at this church, in this church environment, who identify with the cause of Christ who hear all the sermons, who know theology like the back of their hand, and yet inwardly they are turned in in, in utterly uh, uh, committed rebellion to God in terms of secret sin. My caution to you, my real concern, my cry to you, my friends, is beware. God may confirm that judgment on you the door of opportunity for you to repent may close. As Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, God will send them strong delusion that they will believe a lie. Accept the gospel while the door of opportunity is open. Humble yourself and avoid that judgment. But I think there's also something else. The story of Saul is not only that judgment in that regard, but the judgment of one who has a position of authority, a calling of God. It's been said, I think I'm paraphrasing, but there's no one more miserable than someone who is outside the will of God for their life. And what we need to recognize is that the the testimony of Saul is that one who who stood not only against God's calling, but God's will. What would humility for Saul have looked like? Humility for Saul would have looked like when Samuel said, God has rejected you from being king. Humility would have looked like, okay, God, I'm so sorry. Tell me when it's my turn to step aside and tell me who's going to take my place. That's what humility and repentance would have looked like. What was Saul's choice? I'll kill anyone who tries to take my job. And friends, I look at at those who have been given 
positions of great importance, positions of calling in God's economy. And those who have rebelled and resisted and who have held on to what God has rejected them from or has moved them away by their own rebellion and their life is misery. Their life is trouble and tragedy. My encouragement to all of us, has God called you to something? If you're in Christ, he has. Let's make sure that we humble ourselves. Let's make sure that we repent. Let's make sure that our example is not the example of Saul who said, my will be done, not yours. The end result of those who rebel against the calling of God and the will of God is misery. It is tragedy. It is ultimately loss. So friends, remember, remember this story at the very midpoint of 1 Samuel. Remember the opportunities that Saul had. Remember the calling that he had. And ultimately remember the tragic ending of one who decided to align himself against the work of God in his people, not humble himself and participate with it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God of mercy, that you are a God of love, that you are not tempted with evil, neither do you tempt any man. And yet, Father, we see very true, we see biblically over and over that there are times in which you give judgment, a final judicial sentence. Father, how sobering that is. We're reminded of the book of Romans. Behold the goodness and severity of God. And I pray, Father, for those of us who need to meditate on your severity tonight. I pray for those, perhaps, who are aligning themselves in rebellion against God by secret sin. By those who would align themselves in rebellion against God in their own stubbornness and their own self-centered purposes. Father, we need to humble ourselves and repent. I pray, Father, that your, you would have your way with us tonight by your spirit. May your people experience the sweet goodness of your forgiveness and fellowship tonight. Let's pause and allow the spirit of God to speak and apply this message to us. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Father, where there is rebellion in any of our lives, may it be yielded. May your spirit have full leadership in our lives this evening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.